Well, good morning again. <clears throat> Poor, long-suffering Matt. Matt, we need to double your salary, brother, I'm telling you. Uh, he brought all the things down here so I could preach from here. I've, I've got to say that even though we're going to get the lighting fixed, <clears throat> excuse me, last week I noticed I could actually see you guys from down here, and I like the idea of actually being in your midst and all of that, so uh, you might plan to see me down here on a regular basis, but uh, <clears throat> I actually like to see the people I'm talking to, which is nice. So I don't know if you feel the same way about me, but I mean, what can I say? Uh, one of my favorite professors when I was at Dallas uh, <clears throat> was a student of American history, and he made the comment that of the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution, the document that was the most biblical was the Constitution because it recognized that man was sinful by nature and it accommodated that by having the checks and balances and that stuck with me ever since. So it's just an interesting time. Um, <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, a young man that I knew in our youth program in Georgia years ago, he, he moved up to New Jersey and he opened a bar which apparently is the most thriving bar in New Jersey and uh, he's the bartender, manager, owner and all that kind of stuff. And he made a comment on Facebook about the problem with America being us old white men. And my first reaction was to fire back, and I thought, no, let it ride, let it ride. Well, anyway, this weekend I got a private message from him saying, I've got a couple of young daughters. I, I feel like I need to raise them in the Lord, but I don't know what to do. Can you help me? And, uh, you know, and his wife's an atheist, and, uh, and so I, I gave him some feedback, and I said, let's keep the dialogue going. And I think that, that we just have to understand that's our culture today. We have to engage. Uh, I get, especially when we talk about old white men, I get very, you know, prone to want to fight back, but it's like, mm, we need to let the Lord work. And so uh, I'd appreciate your prayers to this young man. Because we're broadcasting, I'm not going to give his name, but, uh, but you'll know. Uh, so anyway, uh, welcome to July 3rd, hard to believe we're already here, and I'd like to pray as we begin our message today, and uh, this will be an interesting passage, it'll be interesting to see how you respond to it. Father, thank you for all you do, and uh, we uh, give you the praise for your greatness, we give you the praise for your word, I give you thanks for the early church and the testimony that they gave us and showed us even in the midst of persecution. Uh, it's incredible to see uh, what they did, and it's very inspiring, so may we draw from that. And I uh, just want to pray that you'll speak through me today and uh, speak to all of us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today we're talking about body life in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. So if you want to turn there, uh, and if you don't, shame on you. But anyway, Acts chapter 2. Um, you know, we had the elders come up, and it's a good reminder to me that we need to love our elders. In fact, I could, I won't, but I could declare this as hug your elder day because it's occurred to me that they just need our love. And that really came out last Sunday. You know, I spoke about the fire, and then we went over to Flying W, and that was a great event. And I saw something happen at Flying W that just showed me that our elders need love. And uh, <clears throat> so y'all just, you know, pay your respects to Bob, and, uh, you know, he and Toasty uh, responded in kind, so that was really, really good. But we had a great, great time. I hope you guys had a good fellowship Sunday afternoon. Speaking of Bob, uh, that reminds me, I did see Top Gun Maverick, if I can confess that in church. Years ago, I ministered in the Naval Aviation Community in Pensacola. I won't make any comment about Navy versus Air Force. Um, or I won't comment about the fact that the finest aviators in the world are trained in Pensacola. But anyway, I won't comment on that. But anyway, uh, I don't know why I'm going there, except to say, you know, last week we showed the F-14s with Toasty. 
And then I saw the movie and there, were no F, uh, there was no Toasty there. But anyway, so transitioning to the sermon, I once heard about a pastor who got up to speak and what he said was, my sermon today is love one another. And everybody was like, okay, all right, all right, what's next? And uh, then he said, love one another. And they're like, all right, what do we do? Uh, whatever, you know, and they're like, keep going. And then once more, he said, love one another. And he stopped. And what happened over a period of minutes is people started talking together. And they started to pray with one another. And they started to share needs that they had. And before you knew it, the body was taking care of itself. People were crying, needs were met. It's kind of what we're supposed to do. Now, obviously, you don't go to that well too often, and I'm not going to do the, uh, that this morning, but that's always stuck with me as the fact when we just stop and think about our needs and we pray with one another, the Lord shows up, He is there, and amazing things happen. In Acts chapter 2, I want to read the passage to you, and then I want to uh, go to a few thoughts from the passage. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It's a short passage today, but boy, is it loaded. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Wow. What an amazing passage. This passage is so loaded. And I think it's so careful to look at closely. I've been really trying to do that in the English and the Greek also to just see, am I understanding the passage well? How can I present it to you? So you remember a couple of weeks ago in our passage that we had how many people come to the Lord in one day? 3,000! Woohoo! There you go, kids. I haven't forgotten you. Uh, that's a ton of newbies into the church. So the ratio then was like 25 to 1. And now in this passage, you see day by day people were being saved. So now we're getting to the point where I can't even give you the numbers exactly. But I do know that it just starts to grow. It adds and then it, it multiplies and then it becomes exponential growth. So I'm going to have to just guess today a little bit about uh, what we've got here. The location is in Jerusalem. The meeting place, they're in the temple and they're in their homes the audience is the Jews around the temple, also new believers. And the structure is 12 apostles and now I think 3,500 plus followers. So imagine almost overnight, they have thousands of people that they need to superintend and they need to feed spiritually and physically. It's astounding. In fact, I ran the numbers on the ratio here. And just look at this. The growth report in Acts chapter 1 was 120. Then in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, we get up to several thousand. And when you look at the ratio here at FRAC, that would be like going from our 140 or so that we have in attendance to 4,088 believers. What would you do if 4,000 people showed up on a Sunday morning? 
We'd be broadcasting from the hill. It's staggering to think how quickly they had to respond to this massive growth. We're not just talking about a little bit of growth. We're not talking about like baptizing one person every month. We're talking about staggering growth, like 29 times the size of what the church was. It's staggering. It's amazing. So I think that's just so cool. Now we'll look at uh, in verse 42, and I think this is uh, really, really, really important to look at, and we have to get it uh, clearly here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I've mentioned this word devoted before. Uh, it's like a child grabbing onto a parent. It's the idea of persisting. It occurs quite a bit in Acts. It's wonderful. They're devoted in prayer. They're devoted together to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. They like hug each other, you know, if you will. They just cling to each other. That's what the word means. They get after it. They're not passive. And we've got to be honest here, looking at this verse and looking at it in the Greek, something really jumps out. These four things that are mentioned are equal. They are equal in the writing of the book of Acts. Luke refers to them equally. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, equally to the fellowship, equally to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And it could be, the reason I have that little offset here is that... Um, Fellowship is defined as the breaking of bread and the prayers. But I want to mention that the way it's expressed, all four are equally important. And so what will happen is a lot of times the church will overemphasize the teaching part, and that leads to certain dysfunctions. Or maybe it will overemphasize the fellowship part and not do much teaching, and that will lead to certain problems. But a church that's healthy has all of these balanced out well together. I mean, this came out when we did our, uh, our recent uh, town hall with the guys in the 20s and 30s, the younger guys, and they were like, you know, we know the teaching's important, but we also really need the fellowship. They weren't saying anything that's not biblical. In fact, that's exactly what Acts chapter 2 says. The teaching and the fellowship are both important. So I'm telling you, I could be more honest about it, but I'm telling you, as you move forward into the future, you need to really watch out for this because the goal is not just to provide a good teacher for frack and say we've done our job. The goal is to have the healthiest fellowship we possibly can. And that is biblical. It's right here. I don't know what more to say about it. That's, I mean, it's just, it's obvious here. So today, it, it raises some fascinating questions. And I have to be honest with what I see that I think this is from the Bible, that your fellowship is just as important as your teaching. And the apostles' teaching here, when you think about, let's think about what the teaching was. They had no New Testament, so they were teaching from the Old Testament. They were teaching from the life of Christ. They were talking about Christ's uh, history you know, and prophecy from the Old Testament. They were getting into Christ's uh, birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the aftermath. They were talking about that. They were talking about the ethical issues that are related to serving the Lord. These were the things they were teaching. Now, this is where it gets a little prickly because nowadays when we think about what we want in a pastor or in a church, you know, we have this long list of things that we've developed since the book of Acts that we think are important. But I'm going to tell you from my perspective, it's the foundational fundamentals of the faith that are important. This is what they were teaching. This is what they were giving to the new believers. And it is okay to ride on that and nothing else. Uh, I had a conversation 
about 10 years ago with a fellow seminary grad. He went to Talbot, which is similar to Dallas, but very closely related. And uh, we were talking, and I said, well, you know, there's 43,000 denominations. He's like, no, nah, I said, that's what the Catholics say. There's only about 3,500. And I didn't bring it out, but I, I thought, do you hear what you're saying? And we've gotten more and more picky, and we separate from each other, and all of a sudden we get to where we can't mesh together. You know what brings us together is persecution, and we're getting there. And the good thing about persecution, it will bring the body of Christ together because the body of Christ has no choice. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Now, you start talking like this, and people start getting nervous, but I'm telling you, everybody says they want to be a New Testament church. There was no basilica rectangular church building in the book of Acts. There was the fundamentals of the faith. If we really want to be a New Testament church, we'll go back to the original and take a look at where they were there, and I will guarantee you it's not what we see in the modern church. Y'all can breathe. It's okay. That's what sound doctrine is. It's not all of our different categories that we've added over the years. They do not define sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is seen right here with the apostles. The idea that they devoted themselves to the fellowship they wanted to be together when they broke the bread here, um, it probably often included the Lord's Supper in their meals, but that was the context. It just blows my mind. We don't do it here, uh, thank the Lord, but you know, a lot of churches, when they do the Lord's Supper, they have these little mystery squares that you have to use tweezers to pick up out of the basket. And it's like, you know, you're taking the greatest thing in the world and you're just kind of trivializing it like that. What they would do in the early church was they would have a full meal and within that they would do the Lord's Supper. Which I think is very honoring to the Lord, but it also assumes that you're gathering together, right? And so that's what breaking the bread was. It wasn't just a short ritual. So I don't think we're doing the Lord's Supper right in general if we're not including a meal in it, but anyway. Um, and I think also how frequently... It doesn't mandate how often you do it, but you know, to say, well, we're gonna do it every five, every fifth Sunday, which we do not say here at FRAC, we do it monthly, but it's like, you know, I mean, this is an important event. Why do we do it as infrequently as we can? But anyway, so they devoted themselves to breaking the bread and the prayers. Notice that each word starts with the, so it's the prayers. They may have had some of the liturgical prayers from the Old Testament that they used, and that's not bad. Liturgy gives you structure. And they gathered together around the temple, and they gathered together in their homes. And one of the things I'm going to say today is that all of this contributed to the, pardon me, to the discipleship of the early believers. Discipleship is a function of fellowship, not classroom space. Our solution in the modern church, we say, we need more discipleship, let's build more classrooms. That is not what happened in the book of Acts. They had no classrooms. They fellowshiped together. They worked with one another. They talked about the Lord. They guided each other in their understanding of the fundamentals of the faith. They walked with each other, and that was New Testament discipleship. And the result in verse 43, awe came upon every soul. And by the way, when it says every soul, I think that's different than in verse 44, all who believed. And my point is this. Even the unbelieving world around them was in awe because they saw the fellowship. When the world looks at the fact that we've got thousands of denominations, they're not exactly in awe of the body of Christ. But when the world sees us taking care of one another and fellowshipping with one another and loving one another and taking care of needs, well, that speaks volumes. 
And that's what we see here. The closeness was striking. We could afford to raise the level of awe in the modern American church, could we not? Something gave them awe, and I think it's a combination of things. The teaching was important. The teaching was strategic, but it wasn't the only thing going on, and we need to realize that. So I think it was everybody, and then uh, this is interesting, that many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Um, notice it's being done through the apostles here. They're following what they saw Jesus do. Wonders, a lot of times we say signs and wonders. Wonders occurs first here. That's things like you know, portents, prophecy, and such. Just as Jesus did the miracles, so did the apostles. I think it's cool that the apostles quickly realized what Jesus had done and why, and they try to emulate him, and the Lord empowers them, and miracles just break out. It's fantastic. God is a God of miracles. I almost brought in uh, this morning something I did not share the other day. I almost brought Tubby in. Well, what's Tubby? You can read about it in my book if you get my book, but... I'm a coffee fan, and I'm a Starbucks fan. I know for some people that means I'm going to hell in a handbasket, but I don't care. I love Starbucks French roast. That's my, that's my drug of choice. And I have a, had a mug that was a 16-ounce stainless steel mug made in Korea that I used for years and years, and it got me through my doctoral dissertation and afterwards, and I called him Tubby. Now, I was close to Tubby. And during the fire, after the fire, I was like, Lord, I'm okay with the loss of everything, but would you mind, please, if I could find Tubby? There was no Tubby. I mean, it's quite a story. I think I'm going to go ahead and tell you. And I would dig around, and I, I thought, you know, usual morning, I would have uh, my coffee in the kitchen area, and so I dug around the kitchen area. Of course, everything was vaporized, but I could never find Tubby. He's like, Tubby's got to be around here somewhere. Now, I know it sounds stupid to you, but you've probably got your own little possessions that you love, right? Am I right? Well, Tubby was mine. Tubby was my anchor. I was like, Lord, I'd love to find Tubby. No Tubby. So one day I'm digging, it's late in the afternoon, I'm digging in the ash, and uh, I was like, Lord, it's obvious you don't want me to find Tubby. I'll give up. I'll focus on other things now. I put down the shovel. Had a bite to eat, sun was about set, and I thought, hey, I got 10 minutes of daylight left. So I picked up the shovel again, and I tried to look for Tubby, and guess what happened? A 50 mile an hour gust of wind blew dust in my eyes I could not see. I'm like, all right, Lord, I broke my promise. You were serious, weren't you? The following week, I go back to the site to dig in the ash. And uh, some neighbors actually came up and said, we hate to ask, but do you mind if we dig with you? And I'm like, sure, have at it. And they're digging over on the side, and I'm over on this side, and all of a sudden something tells me to turn around on my side, and I turn around and look, and there on a pile of ash sat Tubby. That happened. You might think that doesn't happen, but it happened. And I have Tubby in my office today. So I believe in miracles. I don't think I can engineer a miracle anytime I want, but God for his own glory can do it. And Tubby is my reminder that God is still there and that God does miracles. But I literally found Tubby. 
So the whole thing about miracles is everybody wants them. You know, we want them. We want them on command, but they're done for God's glory when he wishes. And so I kind of hold miracles lightly and loosely. It's like, you know, I'm not into the televangelist thing. I think they've got some real issues. But at the same time, I would say God does do miracles. In fact, when I was in India a few years ago, I was in northern India where there's a lot of persecution, and I had a chance to privately meet with what's called pioneer missionaries, which were indigenous uh, men and women from India. And we were sitting in an office uh, privately, and I said, okay, rather than me yapping at you, what is it you want to tell me? And one of them said, a girl in our village was brought back from the dead recently. And I've heard more than one story like that, and I think God still works. Now, I don't have to be, have a miracle to be in awe of God, right? I can still be in awe of God no matter what I should be. But it's amazing when you count the teaching, the fellowship, you know, the wonders and everything else. It all came on every soul. But I notice it's mentioned, if you look carefully, awe comes before the miracles. They were in awe of God before they ever saw a miracle. Now, verse 44, this is where Americans start to, like, raise their feet up. All who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. So let's unpack this for just a second. I think it's important. First of all, these property and possessions, it was not required that they sell everything. We see that in Acts chapter 5 in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, it was optional whether you did this, but just don't lie about it when you do, and that's what got Ananias and Sapphira in trouble, as we'll see soon. In fact, Acts 5, 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own after it was sold? Was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so then it did not go well for Ananias and Sapphira after that. But it was done as people had need, and the Greek here emphasizes it was ongoing. It was not like they brought everything immediately, but as things went on, they liquidated what they had, and they helped other people. And the reason for this, first of all, was sheer need. It was the economic need of people helping one another. You had a lot of people that had come into Jerusalem from other parts of the empire, and uh, they came to Christ, and all of a sudden they're sitting there, and it's like, you know, what do we do? We've got to be taken care of, and so that's what they did. Uh, as they come to Christ, some people are going to be ostracized from their communities. Many were poor anyway. There was the threat of persecution. We're going to see that before long in the book of Acts. And I think it's honestly true. They thought the Lord was coming back soon, so what did it matter? So people were taken care of. I love this quote from Daryl Bach. Conversion led to immediate follow-up and care for instruction, spiritual nurture, personal fellowship, and the meeting of basic needs. The early believers cared so much for each other that they sold or gave personal items to meet those needs. In sharing Christ, they also gave of themselves. One can share Christ not only by what one says about him, but also by showing the transformation that following him brings about. It's easy to preach it, people, but when you give of yourself, you're making a statement that goes far beyond words, and it's a reality. Obviously, we saw this through the fire. It, it really made us think about, you know, the value of possessions and what matters. And like I said last week, the things I gave away before the fire were the things I got, away, got after the fire. But because we're very individualistic as a society, it's, and we're kind of every man for himself, it makes it hard for us to process this. 
It's easier when a culture is tribal. We are not generally a tribal culture, but uh, it, it's interesting. A buddy of mine was a Navy pilot who uh, signed on with Northwest Airlines back in the day, and he ended up getting transferred to Minnesota. So here's a guy from Florida that ends up in Minneapolis. And he said something I'll never forget. It's like, you know, I realize why they have a welfare state up here. It's because the climate will kill you, and the welfare state is their way of taking care of one another, which is just a different spin on it. This was really tested during the time of COVID. When I was interim pastoring in Georgia, we had a brutal time because the church was so peril, uh, uh, polarized on the issue of COVID. And I know it was here, but I wasn't here. But uh, it was tough. And so finally I said to the church, you know, look, we're not going to win this discussion based on science because everybody's got their own opinion of the science and all that other stuff. But I said, what we need to do is handle this from the perspective of the body of Jesus Christ. What do I need to do to take care of my brother and sister? What would be the right thing? And that's how we handled it. But it was not an easy situation. So I think one of the questions for us as a body of Christ is how responsible are we for one another? And what do I owe my brother and sister? Usually somebody will say you're talking about socialism. No, we're not. Socialism is a political and economic system for a country. In my opinion, it's been shown to fail time after time. They're not the same. What we're talking about here, the community takes care of itself in Jesus Christ. And humans do have a great capacity to help each other. So on a lighter note, let me kind of give you a little lighter note here. I love pay-it-forward stories. Anybody like pay-it-forward? How many of you have been in the drive-thru, uh, Chick-fil-A or wherever, and somebody paid for your meal? Yeah, isn't it cool when that happens? How many of you have done that for someone else? Well, I shouldn't meddle. Yeah, that's awesome. So I love pay-it-forward stories, so let me just share a few with you. A Chick-fil-A in Pooler, Georgia, which is near Savannah, in 2015 had 215 people in a row pay it forward. A McDonald's, a McDonald's in Lakeland, Florida in 2015, 250 in a row. A Starbucks in Florida in 2014, 700 in a row. Whoa, dude. A Starbucks in Connecticut. Now these are pagan godless Yankees, right, up in Connecticut. In 2013, 1,468 in a row in Connecticut. A Chick-fil-A in Texas, a man goes in and gives $1,000 for patrons that fed 88 people. So all I'm saying, the application is next time you're in front of me at Chick-fil-A in the line, feel free. Okay, now verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Every day they received food, their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. I think it's because of the fellowship and the love they enjoyed being together, they loved it, they broke bread together. Now, they went to the temple because they're Jewish. The church for the first 10 years was purely Jewish in, in nature, and this is what they did. It's what they were used to. They went to the temple, but I think also they shared when they went to the temple. 
It was not a church, but in the heart of Judaism, they testified of the grace of God. Then they socialized in their homes. They were glad. I love the word glad means exultant or joyful, and generous means simplicity or singleness. The church was simple. We make the church way too complicated. It was simple. They had the teaching of the apostles. They had the fellowship and the love. And you know, it was good enough for them. And I think it's good enough for us. And as a result, in verse 47, the word having favor is the word grace, or it's charis, where we get charisma from. The love in the body was seen by the unbelieving world. It had a major impact. The church was loved instead of reviled. Last week, we had the event at Flying W. It was a tremendous time. Uh, I was able to give out autographed copies of the book. Didn't charge for them, but gave them out. We just had the greatest conversations with people. Somebody would come up and I would say, you know, they'd want the book, and I'm like, did you lose your home? Yes, I would sign the book accordingly. Did you lose your home? No. Did you have survivor's guilt? I would sign the book accordingly. I just love being in the space with the community. I just absolutely love it. And this brings me to something I want to tell you about. It might be useful to you, I hope it is, uh, the idea of middle space. So years ago, I came with a couple of guys from our church in Atlanta to a church in Denver, Grace Chapel, which is on I-25, used to be a car dealership, you know, it's a church. And we were talking to them about how they would reach out, and uh, they told us about an idea of middle space. And middle space is basically this, it's where believer and unbeliever come together. And our middle spaces would be things like at schools, on the job, in Starbucks, uh, when you're pushing your stroller with your neighbor, when you're out talking on your driveway with your neighbor. Those are all kind of middle space events. So the idea would be it's not an easy sell necessarily to get an unbeliever to come to a church. But God provides middle spaces where we can connect and we can share love and share the gospel. And if you get anything out of this message today, would you please sometime pray to the Lord, Lord, show me where my middle spaces are, because that's where I connect with the world. And here in the temple is where they connected. So we need to understand that when we draw them to our church, this church is not, this building is not a monastery for the mature. It's a hospital for the wounded. And a lot of times we act like we need to bring them to church so the preacher can get them. So, like, no, you need the joy and the pleasure of introducing to somebody to Christ yourself. You bring them in, we can baptize them, or in my opinion, you can baptize them in your swimming pool. But uh, this church, this building is a hospital for the wounded. And we need to make it uh, a place where people feel comfortable and warm and loved and can come in and get that kind of healing. It's when a gracious, respectful, dignified relationship exists that we are winsome to unbelievers. That we're not arrogant, condescending, superior. You know, we preach grace, but how well do we live it? So I'm gonna challenge all of us to figure out where our middle space is and to go there. And what happened as a result of all of this, we see it in verse 47. They had favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And I'm not saying that's convicting, but that's convicting. When was the last time a church saw people coming to Christ day by day? Just saying. 
John Stott speaks of a learning church, a loving church, a worshiping church, and an evangelistic church. In other words, the church is to be a place of spiritual growth and spiritual praise, a place that is relational enough to meet needs, engage the culture, and share Christ. I want to challenge you to engage the culture. Of all the books that ever had an impact on me, of all the many, many books I read about ministry, the two books that had the greatest impact, number two was Body Life by Ray Stedman, who was a pastor in California. The number one book that ever had an impact on me in my ministry life was Frank Tillepaw's Unleashing the Church, Getting the Church Out of the Fortress and Into the World. Tillepaw was pastor of Bear Valley Baptist Church in Denver. And I read that book and it was like, man. So I'm gonna read you uh, the original version of the book was called The Church Unleashed, and Vernon Grounds from Denver Seminary wrote the foreword, and I'd like to read that, and I'd like for you to think about it. As Pastor Frank sees American evangel evangelicalism today, many churches are introverted, concerned about attracting larger and larger congregations to their pulpit-centered services, increasing their budgets, improving and expanding the facilities, while their members remain afflicted with arthritic spectatoritis. I got that out, I can't believe it. While their members remain afflicted with arthritic spectatoritis. The problem with the modern American church is a spectator sport. So under God, Frank has been working at Bear Valley to reverse that whole process and he has done so with dramatic results. His message, therefore, is clear and simple. Unleash the church. Forget about bringing people in. Focus on getting God's people out where there are sin and pain and need. Forget about institutional success. Focus on outgroup service. I want to challenge us to take this seriously. As a body, we have a responsibility to each other. As Christ gave his body for us, which we'll see in a minute, we give to one another. Our fellowship and nurture is just as important as our teaching. And take a moment to ask God what he wants you to do with all this. So I've been giving you different points. This is how I'm going to conclude today about the infant church. And I want to share two slides about the infant church. I want to provoke your thinking. To be doctrinally solid was to hold to the fundamentals of the faith. It was not an issue of where you were pre-mill, ah-mill, or new covenant. They were Jewish, attracted to the Jewish ways. They had all the gifts they needed in the church. Their faith was simple and not cluttered by the distractions of the modern church. I don't think they even live streamed. The fellowship was as important as the teaching. The fellowship engaged the unbelievers and led to salvations. They met the world where it was in the middle space and also fellowshiped in homes. To reach the world, we have to go into the middle space. Don't make the mistake of thinking the world has to come here. Everyone was a minister, small m. There was not a church building in sight, but somehow thousands came to Christ. That's your New Testament church. Discipleship was a function of relationship, not classroom space. That's the book of Acts. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the testimony of the apostles and the early believers. It's so awesome to see all those believers come in and just sit back and think about how the church processed having thousands of people all of a sudden show up. But they did it. It's just amazing, and often we forget that. Help us to get it right, Lord, that we might be a place where we have deep and meaningful teaching, deep and meaningful fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. When we do that, then we will be the New Testament church. In Jesus' name, amen.